Today's scripture reading is incorrectly printed in the bulletin. It actually comes from Genesis 2, starting from verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. The word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for reading that. This morning, we return to our series on the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11. We're calling this series Prologue because that's really what these chapters are. That's how they function in the Bible. A prologue is what? A prologue is the story before the story. It's like those yellow words in uh, Star Wars, right, that come and flow across the screen. They give you the story before the story. Or like the origin story of a hero in a movie. It's what you need to know in order to make sense of everything that happens afterward in the story. So, if you skip the prologue, or if you don't remember the prologue as the story continues, it won't be complete. It won't have its full meaning. It won't make sense. In Genesis 1 through 11, as we've been saying uh, this fall, is the Bible's prologue. The passage that we just heard read together, the passage that is in the bulletin, Genesis chapter 2, especially verses 18 through 25, are the Bible's prologue to marriage and sexuality. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I realize few things are maybe more sensitive, more difficult, sometimes disputed in our world, in our culture today, than the story of marriage and sexuality. Is there a story? Is there a real true story that tells us what marriage and sexuality are and what they are for? Or is the only story that we have to work with the story that we have within ourselves, what we want to be true, what we desire to be true in our story? For those of us who would say we believe in and hold to the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality, this is also true for us. Few things are more sensitive and difficult for us. And if we're honest, then we should be. Few things are more maybe disputed, 
as we think about what the Bible says about these things, maybe question, we wonder, what does it say? How clear is it? And sometimes by our actions, we discard even the things that we say we believe in and are right and good. So this morning as I teach on this sensitive and difficult and disputed topic, I do so with a sense of sensitivity. The fact that we're all coming to this from different places, some maybe here are new to Christianity and so you're wondering, yeah, what is the Bible's story on marriage and sex? What is that? Some of us are young and are still processing this and learning about this. Some of us come knowing that this topic is being discussed. We're a little bit guarded, maybe a little bit hardened as to what we've heard or experienced that the Bible teaches on these things. So it is one of the great challenges to teach on this in our day. But I also come to this topic with a sense of holy and beautiful mystery and awe. Because what we're talking about this morning is one of the most beautiful and powerful ways that we can follow Jesus and reflect Jesus in our day, in our marriages, or in our singleness. So because of all this, I'm going to pause right now and I'm going to pray before we dive in and get into this topic together. Lord, I do pray that you would open up our hearts to what you have to say about these topics, marriage and sexuality, that we'd come with open and honest hearts, that you'd help us navigate the sensitivities, even the ways that we are, are maybe guarded in our own hearts and lives in these areas. But I also pray that you'd open us to the beautiful mystery, that we would have awe as we talk about these powerful things, powerful forces in our lives. And I pray for those who have hurt in these areas, that you would come with healing and that you would redirect us to you and to your truth. As we spend time looking at these things this morning, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In the Bible, we have two chapters out of 1,189 that show us what life looked like as designed by God before the entrance of sin and brokenness. Just two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. Everything after this in the Bible deals with life as bent or broken or corrupted by sin and needing the redeeming work of God. Most examples that we read of after Genesis 2, of marriage and sex in the Bible, are examples of how God did not design things, of the design gone wrong and discarded. And besides mostly bad examples that we have in, in Scripture, but we have our boundaries or ethics or moral laws to guard and to deal with marital and sexual realities that are not what God intended. So given that, that's why this passage, Genesis 2, this prologue is so important because here we have God's design, God's intention for marriage and sexuality. It's only from this prologue can we rightly understand all the other things that come afterward, all the bad examples, all the ethics, all the moral boundaries that God gives us in His Word about marriage and sex. So for my first point, I'm going to teach... But I hope is very carefully, very point by point and step by step. And I'm going to ask you to follow along with the text and with me as I do it. And for my outline, what I'm using are two 
passages in Scripture that quote back to this prologue, Genesis 2, and teach from this as the foundational place we need to start and return when we're thinking about these issues. One is from Matthew 19 from Jesus, and one is from Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul. When Jesus was answering questions people had for him about marriage and sex, he quotes this passage, specifically verse 24. In Matthew 19, 6, he summarizes the teaching of this passage, and he says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. And those are words that you might hear in a wedding ceremony, the words that I say when I do a wedding ceremony. The Apostle Paul, in teaching on marriage and sexuality in Ephesians, also quotes this passage, same verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, as the basis for his teaching on those things. And so for my outline this morning, these are the, the phrases we're going to use as we walk through this text. Number one, what God has joined together. Number two, this is misprinted in your bulletin, let no one separate. That's what it should say, let no one separate. And number three, this is a profound mystery. All right, first, this is where we're going to go step by step here into this text. Uh, first, what God has joined together. According to Jesus, Genesis 2 is telling us what God has designed to be joined together. I kept searching in my mind for some kind of illustration, and this is the best one I I could come up with, but it is kind of like a Lego set. If you have a Lego set, you see the, the picture on the box. This is how all the pieces are meant to be joined together to create this toy, this spaceship, or whatever it might be. And if you just have a bunch of pieces of Legos that are separate from, from one another or not joined Together, there's nothing very remarkable about those uh, Lego sets. And often, as parents know, if they're on the floor, uh, they can just cause us great torment as we step on those separate pieces. In Genesis 2, and Jesus is saying, these things, as we're about to read, have been designed to be joined together and more strong than Legos that are able to be uh, separated and pulled apart. These are to be joined as it were, by a gorilla glue type of strength. They're made to be joined together. So first, Genesis 2 shows us there's a design for marriage and sex. Whatever else we conclude from our reading and interpretation of this passage, one thing is clearly and indisputably being communicated here. This is what I'm going to seek to show you, this, that there is a careful, intimate, Intentional and good design by God, our creator, for marriage and sexuality. We have that up on the screen. It's the whole tone. It's the whole nature of this passage. Design, care, intention, purpose, and goodness. So before we get to what that design is, I think it's important that we simply see how unmistakably this passage communicates to us this design. And not just any design, but careful, intentional, and good. So when we come to our questions and our struggles and things we don't like about this, first, we need to start with whether or not we believe there is a design for these things. And this passage is telling us there is. So let's look first at Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 7. It's not here in the bulletin printed, but it's earlier on in the chapter. There in Genesis 2, 
I'm going to turn there right now. You can turn there with me. Chapter 7, we read about the creation of the man. And there it says, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God forms the man's body like a potter. That's the language. Like an artist out of the dust. And then you can't get a more intimate picture of what he does next, that he breathes the breath of life into the man's nostrils. So what I want to see from that is that is very close up. That is very personal. Because even if you have your beloved, if you have your spouse in your life, you probably are not going to say, honey, let me breathe into your nostrils. That is not very romantic. That's, so, that's, too, that's too much to be breathing into each other's nostrils. But this is the very breath of God. The life of God has been breathed into the man. And so the man's body, his physical being that has been built like a potter by God, is infused with spiritual life. We could say a soul, his inner being, both carefully and intimately designed by God, the creator of the universe. So man is an embodied soul, right? We could say that. We could just as easily say man is a soul-animated body. These things are joined together in our humanity. We are body and soul. One is not better than the other. One is not greater or lesser. These are both a part of our good design by God. That's what we are. Now, look with me at the passage that is printed in the bulletin in verse 18. After we learn how God made this perfect place for the man to live, this garden that was full of provision and water and everything he needed, we read in verse 18, and we full stop there because it says, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And that is huge as we're reading the prologue in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Because every other time God has spoken in in these chapters, every time he's created something and crafted something and designed something, he stopped, and every time he stepped back, he said, it is good, right? But here he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So even though the man had God, God was there. We read God was there. He was close and personal with the man. It still wasn't good. We say, how could that be? Well, here we're learning about design, that God designed us for relationships with one another. As a part of being made in His image, as God exists in eternal relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal persons, yet different persons, He exists in this relationship, so man is designed to exist in relationship like this as well. And we read on in verse 21 in a scene that is just as delicate and intimate and personal and intentional as the forming of the man, God makes a woman. It's a different word. Instead of the word for potter or or artist, the word here when God says, I'm going to make, it's the word in Hebrew that's often translated to build. So God is building. He is architecting a perfectly suited companion for the man. Someone who is also made in his image, like the man, yet different 
Do you see the word corresponding? That happens twice here. I will make a helper corresponding to him. That word there is very important. It means like yet different. You could translate it as a counterpart. So it's the word, it's the best word to communicate equality, image of God, yet different and distinct, and yet somehow designed to be together. God says it's not good for man to be alone. Man cannot fulfill his mandate and purpose to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it by himself. He needs a counterpart, someone who is his like different. The word helper, there is another word that's important for the design that's being communicated in this text. Uh, the word helper there is probably not the way that we would first think about it in the English language. It's not uh, in any way a term that means lesser or subordinate. So the term is mainly used of God in the scriptures, helper. Clearly, when it's used of God, God is not the lesser party helping human beings. He's the greater party in that instance. Providing assistance where we need it as the one who provides what is lacking in us. So this word helper carries all of that, that man by himself cannot do what humanity is created to do. But together in partnership, man and women, they are designed to image God and fulfill their purpose together. This whole scene where God takes from the man, he, he causes the man to fall into a deep sleep and, and pulls his rib out and, and builds a woman out of that also. A very intimate, a very careful description of the crafting of woman. Being built from the rib or the side of man is telling us that this is a relationship that's characterized by harmony and intimacy between the partners, side by side, Right? Not one in front of the other or one behind the other or one over dominating the other or underneath the other, but side-by-side side partnership. That's how God created man and woman to live. And then, if you look at verse 22, God takes this woman, brings her to the man. Again, this is very intimate. This is very close. This is very personal. Like God is giving away the woman in marriage to the man, and the man says in verse 23, this one at last, right? The first poem in Scripture, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. After seeing all the animals, God had said, let's take a look at these animals. And, and Adam's like, this is not bone of my bone. This is not flesh of my flesh. There's something missing here. And he sees the woman and says, now at last. What is not good is now good. All this is communicating to us that God has this careful and intentional and good design for human beings as man and woman, body and soul. So an application for us as we pause, as we think about what's right, what's, what's wrong when it comes to matters of marriage and sexuality? What is good? What leads to human life and flourishing and goodness? When we're thinking about all these things and wrestling with all these things, more important than our feelings, more important than our experiences and our inner experience, and more important than our desires, is that God has a design. 
if this is true. And what I've just tried to do is walk us through the text to show you it is being communicated here in Genesis 2. It's not just saying, yeah, God has a design, follow it. Do you see the intimacy? Do you see the care? Do you see the purposefulness behind this design? I'm not discounting our feelings. They're very strong. I'm not discounting our inner experiences. They're very strong. They can't just be ignored or or pushed away. I'm not telling us to ignore our desires, which are a part of what God has given to us. I'm saying that even those things can be, they can be very strong. We must believe. We must trust there is a design that directs our desires, our feelings, and our experiences. So from here, we can move a little bit more specifically into marriage and sex. Look at verse 24. See verse 24, a famous verse. It's the one quoted by Paul and by Jesus. It says, this is why, or it says, for this reason. So just the structure of that phrase there is saying, what, what is why? What is the reason? 18 through 23 are the reason for what verse 24 says. We're being given here in Genesis 2 the reason or the why behind marriage and sex. So we can say that God has a careful, intentional, and good design. Not only for for man and woman, body and soul, but for marriage and sex. What is marriage? According to Genesis 2, 24, the simple definition is man and wife becoming one flesh. Which is more than just a physical oneness. The word flesh, there is best understood as communicating a comprehensive oneness. Emotional, relational, spiritual, two people and all they are becoming one. If you just read this in light of the story, this is why, this, for this reason, everything that we were given before, these verses that come prior, what we see is marriage, it's like this reunification of being. That's what the man is saying here. He, he looks at the woman and says, what? Really? This one? Like me, but not like me. And wait, she came from me? And yet we're being reunited. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. The two will become one again in marriage. That's what's being communicated here. And so marriage, and we could put this definition up on the screen, then is a a fuller definition, the joining together of one man, And one woman in comprehensive oneness. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually, physically bound together. No longer two people, but now two made one. How does that happen? How do two people become one? We're told in Genesis 24. It says, when a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, the word bond could be translated cleave. It could be translated hold fast to or is joined to. Those two words are very significant. Leave and cleave are covenantal words. They're words of exclusivity. I take you, forsaking all others. And they're words of fidelity. I'm making a promise to you. With my words, my life, and with my body. And so, the traditional vows, there is two steps to a traditional marriage vow ceremony. There's one, the declaration of consent, and then there is the making of the vows. And so the officiant asked, right, the two parties, do you take this man or woman to be your wife or husband? 
to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her or him? Comfort, keep, honor. And forsaking all others, exclusivity, be faithful, fidelity to her and him as long as you both shall live. And once the couple says, yep, that's what we're here for, and once they make those promises to one another, then right there, and this always amazes me, right there, those words that are spoken publicly and out loud, that is what makes a marriage. The making of those vows. Those words of promise. So now we have the final piece of the definition of marriage. Marriage is the joining of one man and one woman in body and soul oneness by means of a covenant. What about sex? Well, I haven't forgotten about that. We can talk about that too. This includes God's design for sex, and I want to share this slide. One definition based on the text and the design communicated here is that sex is a physical expression of and enjoyment of and an enacting of the covenant of oneness between a man and a woman in marriage. This means sex and covenant are joined together. And this covenant includes a promise and a commitment to all that results from our, our oneness, man and woman. All that results from us becoming one flesh. All that results from us being physically united, which of course includes children. Sex carries with it a covenant to all that results from the fruit of our union. So, to wrap up point one, God is very pro-sex. As the creator of sex, he made it as the expression, the enjoyment, and the act, enacting of the covenant of oneness. And he blessed it with power to be unitive. It expresses and it actually enacts and strengthens this oneness. So it is unitive of two people. And it is creative, of course, because it is the means by which new life is brought into the world. And the prologue ends with verse 25, the man and the woman were naked and unashamed so that in the safety of the commitment of this relationship, in the safety of the covenant, the man and his wife are fully known and fully loved by one another and there is no shame. This is what Jesus says, God has joined all this together. So let's see the second point. Jesus says, and so don't separate these things. Male, female, body and soul, covenant. We just put that slide up. That's, it's not a great illustration, like I said. Those are the Lego pieces, so to speak, that have been designed together to create what marriage is and, it's, and God's design for marriage. And Jesus says, don't separate these things. The Bible's teaching on marriage and sex is that any approach to marriage and sex that doesn't keep these things together, it falls short of God's design. And thus does not lead to our full human flourishing and goodness and purpose and wholeness. So, in the Bible, what this means is, this is kind of like brass tacks. What does this mean? That there are two options in the Bible for marriage and sex. One, one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. Two, singleness and celibacy for a temporary season or as a long-term life calling. And in our culture today, what I just said, it seems like, wait, really? 
That's it? Those are the, our two options? Can you, are you serious? That's too restrict, that's too repressed. It sounds crazy. There's got to be more. And Jesus got this reaction from his own disciples. If you look at Matthew 19, when he reinforced this joining together vision of marriage and sex from Genesis 2, he's talking about it with the religious leaders and the disciples. Hear what he has to say. And they say, it's better not to get married then if it's that way. And Jesus says, well, you do have another option. You can become a eunuch for the kingdom. That's how he says it. And sometimes we chuckle and go, whoa. Like that. That's like going straight after Jesus right there. But he's not joking. And I want to be very serious about that because he was not joking and he was serious. You don't have to have sex or get married to be fully human and flourish and fulfill the calling and purpose you have from God, whether temporarily or for your life. Singleness and celibacy is honored, is elevated by Jesus' teaching and by Jesus' life. The most truly joyful, whole, and flourishing human to ever live, our Savior and our example, was single for the sake of the kingdom. And as Christians, we need to keep that in mind. For Jesus, he says, option one, what God has joined together, do not separate. Or singleness and celibacy. Anything outside of those is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. I have a slide here. Sexual immorality is the Bible's blanket term for any way we separate these things. And there are many ways we do. And the Bible does not really rank the ways that we do this as if certain ways that we separate these things are worse than others. Sometimes that happens within the Christian community, though. In our culture, there's a common sexual ethic that goes like this. If it brings bodily pleasure and doesn't harm anyone, and there is consent between adults, it's okay. Marriage is not needed. Well, I can't address everything. Maybe there are a lot of questions in your mind. We're going to talk about a few ways that we try to separate what God has joined together and the results and consequences of this. So what I would like to do is show you what happens when we separate what God has joined together. First, let's talk about lust. Lust for another person separates soul from body, doesn't it? Lust is a desire for the body of a person, not the whole person in covenantal union. So instead of a a promise with the desire, with with sexual desire, instead of what's supposed to be joined to that, which is a promise and a covenant, instead there's none of that, there's no promise of self-giving and service, there is a selfish using of another person's body. So lust involves a discarding, a separating of a person's body and their soul, kind of discarding the soul so you can use the body. One manifestation of lust in our culture that is ever-present is pornography. In the same way as lust, viewing pornography trains a person to separate someone's body from their soul. This is not a person with a whole range of emotional, relational, and spiritual life and being. Just pixels on a screen. Pornography not only discards the soul of another image bearer, it also disregards their body. 
It's just the disembodied use of the image of another person's body. So what? Does it hurt anything? I think it does. Because it erodes our ability to see and honor people as image bearers of God. It erodes and tears asunder that part of our own character that enables us to keep our covenant promises which is probably the most important part of our character we have, our fidelity, our promise-keeping, our commitments that we make to other image bearers, which involves things like giving before getting, which involves honoring the interests of others and placing others first instead of using bodies for our own pleasure. You turn off the screen, they're gone. There's no commitment. It's like they never existed. To use others' bodies in this way leaves us in profound loneliness. Because you are activating the unitive power of sexual desire, but there's no one there. How about, this is just a private thing that can happen between a couple people, as long as there's consent. This part of the ethic assumes that sex is just a private act between consenting adults, but... Let me ask you to consider this. How can the physical union that brings other human beings into the world be just simply a private act? It is a very public act in this sense. And here's the question then. Can we separate the sexual union from the commitment to everything that comes from that union of man and woman? We've tried to do that. We've tried to put sex in a bucket and children in another bucket. And what happens when we do that? Children are devalued. And when they are conceived, they are called unwanted pregnancies that can be discarded. And that is tragic. What about just bodily pleasure? Can't there just be bodily pleasure and not all that other stuff? Can we enjoy the bodily pleasure of sexuality without the soul bonding and attaching power of sexuality? Genesis 2 says, no, God has joined those things together. They cannot be separated. Even in our own bodies and in our own hormones, the hormone oxytocin, the bonding chemical, sometimes called the love chemical, is released in sexual relationships. Your body is saying, I am bonding to this person. I am one with this person. There's a reflection quote at the beginning of the bulletin, the movie Vanilla Sky. I never saw it, but it's quoted, this is quoted in in a book. One of the characters says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. It can't be fully separated. And because of this, when we try, it leaves people hurt. It, It leaves people feeling used, discarded. And apart from God's design, outside of the safety of a whole life covenant. What about same-sex relationships? The joining together of a man and a man and a woman and a woman is separating what God has joined together in marriage and sex, which is only a man and a woman. God has designed these like difference, these counterparts, to be joined together in the covenantal union of marriage and sexuality. And only blessed the joining of a man and a woman with this unitive and creative power that comes with marriage and sexuality. Last example. What about in marriage? Is it just all 
easy and paradise in marriage, in relationships, in the relationship of marriage, and in sexuality? Of course not. Well, sexual oneness, intimacy. We see it's been joined together. It's designed to thrive. Only when there is soul intimacy, emotional, relational, spiritual oneness. And from the keeping of our covenantal vows and faithfulness, the promises we've made to our spouse to love, to serve, to be present, to listen to, to know them, to know their heart, to love your spouse with safety and honesty, not hiding and being known, and knowing one another. These are all joined together and sex can't be separated from the wholeness of the comprehensive union. So, because God has joined these things together, sex cannot be neglected in marriage and it cannot be expected either. It is a part of the whole. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So much more we could say. But as we move into the third point, what I will say is, what the Apostle Paul says, this mystery is profound. What does that mean? The romantic and sexual part of us that we all have, that God designed us to have, it's powerful, it's complicated, it can be confusing, it can be difficult, it can be wonderful. All of that together is very mysterious. There is a mysterious power at work there. That's in part what I think the Apostle Paul means here. But he's saying something more than that when he calls marriage and sex this great mystery. And I think it's this. You can know everything that we just talked about and say, I agree with that. I I know that and I believe that. And I'm going to try to live, live it out. And that is not enough. There's more we need. It's not enough for us to flourish and grow in our marriages. Just that. Just what I just said. Point one and two. It's not enough for us to flourish and embrace singleness and celibacy. It's not enough. It's not enough to deal with the temptations we have, with struggles, conflicts, and confusion we have, that everyone faces in these things at some level. And it's not enough for us as Christians to say, look, we, we taught it, it's there, it's God's design. Everybody else out there needs to do it and follow it. The Bible says there's something more profound we need to know. There is a prologue to the prologue on marriage and sexuality. What do I mean? There's a story. There's a love. There's a gift. There's a passion. There's a a desire. There is a lover that comes first before God designed marriage and sex. And in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us what that is. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, verse 31, and the two will become one flesh. Very familiar, Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The prologue to the prologue is the love of Jesus for his bride, the church. Paul says this is a profound and great mystery. And we say, wait, 
what, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is this. Marriage and sexuality were actually designed by God on a prior model and design. So he's saying, I'm going to create humanity. I'm going to create them in these light counterparts, male and female, to have this relationship of covenant union. And that is based on this. This model, this prior design of the loving union that Jesus, the Son, will have with his people. Of how Jesus would take on flesh and a body and join himself to humanity to become one with us in loving union to redeem us from all our sin, all our failures in marriage, in sex, and relationships, all our false and dead roads, all our disappointments, all our desires that are unmet are met in the wrong ways. That before God designed marriage and sex, he said, when they step away from us in unfaithfulness, we have a design for that. The design for that is to bring them back in the way that they will be brought back is through the redeeming love of Christ. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus says to us, his church. To all who come to him in faith, he says this. And it almost sounds heretical or blasphemous. Jesus says, I refuse to be me without you. That's how much we are one. I cannot be me without you. That's what Paul is saying, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is saying, I will not enjoy the self-giving, eternal love relationship that I have that is unbreakable in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without you, my bride, you will have all that I have. I will not let you be anything except what you are designed to be, even if it hurts me, even if it kills me. I promise you, no matter what, no matter what I see of your sinful and broken hearts and lives, I gave myself for you. So no matter what you lose, no matter what you do, no matter how you feel, the spouse you do have or don't have, you'll always have me. Because I am one with you. You didn't earn my love, and you can't lose it. So final thought. For the Christian, then, marriage and sex are not designed for our personal fulfillment, but they are complementary ways that we bear witness to Jesus Christ and his love for us and for the world. Marriage and sex are not designed primarily for us or for our pleasure or what we get out of them, but what we get to give to others and the way that we get to witness to all that Jesus has given to us. It means marriage and sex were not designed then primarily to complete or fulfill us personally, but to, to teach us, to shape us to become people who give ourselves away in self-giving, promise-keeping, sacrificial love. So marriage and sex are the training ground for us to become more like Jesus, those of us who are married. For all of us who are called to marriage, it's the main way we display the gospel to others. This is what it looks like to love like Jesus. That's what we're showing to the world by the way we love our spouses. And what about for those who are single or celibate? It doesn't mean we are incomplete or unfulfilled as people. We are designed 
it, singleness and celibacy is designed to teach us out of our exclusive commitment and love for Jesus to be so filled and empowered by his love to grow in self-giving, promise-keeping, sacrificial love to others. Singleness is designed as a training ground to become more like Jesus, who himself was single. And actually, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you want his opinion, if you're after happiness, he says, I think you'll be happier without marriage and sex. He says that in 1 Corinthians 7. Those called to singleness and celibacy, the main ways you display the gospel to others and say to others with your life, Jesus is enough. This is what it looks like to be loved by Jesus. There is profound mystery to that. And Paul is saying, the deeper we drive ourselves into the eternal love of Jesus, can we experience the mystery of his love for us and more faithfully bear witness to that mystery with our lives, whether he's called us to be married or single. And we need his grace to do that, so let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your good designs for us. I pray as we think about that, as we reflect on that together, that each one of us, I know, Lord, we have ways that we can be more faithful. Maybe we're thinking of some of those ways, and I pray that you would guard us from fast-forwarding to shape our lives up, to clean our lives up first, without first delving deep into the mysterious love that you have for us in your Son, Jesus. May we experience afresh his faithful love for us. May we be satisfied with his delight over us. May we, may we be washed clean by his forgiving grace that fills every nook and cranny of our heart and lives. And may we be further empowered because of that love, because of how we have been loved, to love in the ways that you have called and designed us to do that. For your glory we pray in Christ's name, amen.